hello, I'm Sarah Bartley. You're tuned into another episode of Funding is the Matter. Funding is the Matter is a podcast that talks about the surplus of issues caused by the racial wealth gap, the podcast that breaks down methods to sustain funding for education and science topics that impact the Black community. This podcast proves to define that Black Lives Matter is a scientific and social problem. So I'm going to be introducing Dr. Steve Mobley Jr., and he's going to be breaking down his many articles that talk about student activism and homophobia at HBCUs. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. As I stated before, we're going to go through a list of your articles. We're going to first start with negotiating race and sexual orientation in the college choice process of black gay males. First, it's going to talk about queer student groups. And so one of the things I want to talk about, like, what funds are like necessary to sustain these groups on HBCU campuses? And do we have any scholarships for these communities as well? I think that before you get to funding to even sustaining groups is you have to get to the fact of, I think that many schools have them. I think we're up to about 32% of HBCUs now have queer and student groups, which is a really, really great thing. I think that we could push that envelope much more to have more groups, but that is just one entry point into making our students that identify as queer or trans to feel as if they belong, have a sense of belonging on these campuses. With funding, I think that is funding like any other group, right? You need to be able to have funding to sustain for programming, any speakers, how to engage, so forth and so on. So if these groups were to able to have a budget line item within their student affairs division, that will be key so that they're able to sustain. But I also would push and say that students can do things like fundraising and other types of engagement to get other kinds of sponsorship in the local communities to make sure that programming other things happen. As far as scholarships, there are HBCUs that have them. I know, for instance, Howard University has the Lavender Fund, and they are the first and only HBCU to have an alumni group that is geared towards their queer and trans alumni. But the funds that are used from alumni that are raised go towards programming and scholarships for undergraduate and graduate students who identify as queer or trans within that HBCU. Also going up on your article, this is an excerpt. While analyzing which identity was more salient during the college choice process, it became apparent that those who self-identify highly with their racial identity, but not strongly with their sexual orientation, decided to attend Legacy University, the HBCU. Do you have a comment about this statement? What would you want to know? That's just a very broad question. <laughs> They're stating that if I identify more with being Black, I'm going to go to HBCU. If I identified more with being, being queer, I will go to a PWI. And so one of the things in this finding that I thought was really interesting that some of the students that did go to PWIs, like some of their interpretations of what an HBCU was, where they had some anti-Black remarks, and versus some of the other people that went to HBCUs, they were just oh. like, I really... I'm like, I am Black. I'm Black every day. And so those type of comments. So I think that with regard to that finding, there's lots of nuance. I would love to redo that study now (laughs) just because that was 2015 and we're knocking on maybe almost 10 years. I hate saying that because I feel like I'm aging myself. I wonder, because in 2015, this was right before I would say we started to have a lot of the rumblings of Black Lives Matter. I think we had just endured Trayvon Martin's killing. This was also pre-COVID. This was pre what people are calling this newfound renaissance for students with record enrollments that are happening across HBCU sectors. I thought it was very intriguing that some students felt as if, well, these Black gay students were very well aware 
that perhaps their LGBTQ plus identity would not be as affirmed, but they really wanted to be in a Black environment and amongst that type of cultural space. What I think was more difficult or was more intriguing, though, um, were the ways that some of the Black gay male students who chose to go to PWIs did have some anti-Black and deficit-laden views and were othering HBCUs, which I found to be very, very intriguing. But I wonder if we were to do this study in the present-day context, that still reigned true. Because it's a very myopic way of looking at HBCUs for many of those students who were making some of those derogatory comments. One of the things that also some of the students that did choose the HBCU, they really had the issue of choosing between their Blackness or their queer identities. Did you find this surprising or was that just like similar to some of the experiences that you've had or no? It wasn't surprising at all. I think that when you're thinking around looking at people with myriad oppressed identities and how they show up and how they're forced to negotiate those, especially within HBCU spaces, is always intriguing. Having to make a choice to perhaps show up in a particular way that may have been seen as false or not authentically you was rather disheartening, but it is what really drives me to do this work and push back on those narratives so that students don't have to feel this way, if that makes sense. Moving on to your next article that talks about no pumps allowed, the problem with gender expression in the Morehouse College appropriate attire policy. One of the things I'm going to talk about is how does like the myth of the quote unquote feminization of Black men impact these attitudes? Because I believe it was Tashina Arnold's that had like a Twitter post about what can we do about the feminization of Black men and how that is pretty much rooted into anti-Blackness in itself, those comments. People that believe in this myth <laughs> of this quote unquote feminization of Black men, I think that is, it is, it's definitely anti-Black sentiment. Let's make that very clear. But I also think that those same people believe that there is Black masculinity with a Y and that there are not Black masculinities, plural. And I think that was the crux of this article was that students who presented as gender nonconforming were a challenge and a front to this Morehouse aesthetic. They were disrupting that space in a very particular way. And the response from their peers, administrators, and even the broader societal context was pretty fascinating. Even how it even came up in the news, it was just very intriguing because myself and my co-author were just like, you're targeting a certain sect of students. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And why are you doing that? You know? How does respectability politics impact Morehouse College and also just the culture of HBCUs? Because during the civil rights movement, this type of the attire that they stated, that's like the attire that you had to go into to like protest as well. And so how does that tie into what they're quote unquote trying to do with this policy as well? The politics of respectability are very nuanced. I think it goes beyond dress. It's just behavior and the ways in which Black folks or how we police each other to show up. I think what's not often talked about and should be talked about more (laughs) is that these were measures of protection in a way. Even though it was enacting some metaphorical violence on particular Black communities, it was a form of protection. People felt as if you showed up in a particular way, if you spoke a certain way, if you were to be made palatable to the white majority, that you would somehow be safe or have a better way to go than Black people who didn't fall into this very specific paradigm, if that makes sense. I think that now 
many students, I do believe, are pushing back on that, which is a great thing. And they're demanding to be served and to be seen in their full Blackness, which I believe is pretty, pretty powerful. I think that these norms of respectability or the politics of respectability can be found in many of our revered traditions within HBCU spaces, our cultures and our customs. But I think that they can be amended and we've seen them be amended at particular institutions where they're made to be more inclusive. I think about Spelman College, which it was once called the white dress attire or policy where during convocation or you know graduation and so forth and so on, there were these ceremonies where their students were expected to wear these white dresses, but that was not the norm for their students who didn't identify on the binary or within the queer community. They wanted to be able to wear whatever they chose to express themselves. So now it's called the white attire policy. Other language has been amended. So I believe they call it, instead of Spelman's sister, it's my sibling. We know that these things can be amended and it's not taking away from tradition. It's just being made to be more inclusive for all of our communities on campus. Going on to your next article about redefining queer and trans student retention and success at historically Black colleges and universities. One of the things that has happened as of 2019, as you reported, Bennett, Morehouse, and Spelman, they're including all these trans applicants. How can we extend this practice to faculty, staff, and admin in the trans community for recruitment? I think it's the same with students. I think that if you're made to feel as if you're safe, Because to be very clear, there are trans and queer faculty on these campuses, but their choices to be openly queer and or trans may be compromised because they don't feel safe on campus. So the same way we have to make our spaces environments where we want our students to be their whole selves, we have to make sure those protections are in place for our faculty, administrators, and staff as well. What are the staff and faculty needed to sustain this model? Because I have up here, it's just like the model of the queer and trans student identity development and affirmations. Can this be like a research project for a student that maybe that you have or maybe a student at another school? So I don't understand a research question with regards to... So for this model, one of the things that this model is, how do you actually sustain like the faculty? And so one of the things you're talking about, their enrollment management, academic classroom experience, out of classroom experience. How are we researching this? Because one of the things that when we make these models, there may be things that we may need to tweak this just to improve on, to enhance it. How are we like getting people to research it to also to make sure that we're making sure that people are giving us feedback? It's out there now. Anybody can do it. (laughs) It doesn't exist in a vacuum anymore, which is a fabulous thing. I will tell you this, though, Sarah. I've gotten tremendous feedback, amazing feedback from HBCU senior level administrators, staff, and faculty about this model. When we're thinking about sustaining, I think that at the heart of what this model communicates is that it's not one person's job and it has to be a communal effort. From recruitment to graduation, even alumni engagement and wrapping that back around. I love how you said, how are we researching or what kind of feedback? I don't want to call it, because that wasn't a way for me to test it, but I did take this model a bit on the road. Myself and my co-author, who's my mentee, Leslie Hall, We were presenting this model in front of the people who we would want to enact it, which was pretty cool because I don't think that we as faculty or researchers ever have the chance to do that. I'll put it this way. Do we actively want that type of feedback during the writing and publication process? I'll leave it there, right? But I always say that I am doing 
this work and engaging this research and scholarship with HBCUs and not on them. So I'm not just going to write something just to write it <laughs> or put something out there if it's not sustainable or if it doesn't make any sense. So if you notice in there, Sarah, there's an asterisk and it said that please note that implementing this model in its entirety or even in parts will yield tremendous results for queer and trans HBCU students. The reason why we even had that asterisk in there is because we had a dean of students at HBCU that was like, if I put this model in front of my president, it could be pretty overwhelming. Because people now we're thinking about resources, what does it take to implement? But if you do any one of these things, like I'm thinking about even with enrollment management and updating your different types of databases, right? So that students are able to put in preferred pronouns and preferred names. So they're not having to out themselves every year. What does it look like in the recruitment phase and having your queer and trans students involved in the recruitment and also having them as your tour guides or your orientation staff. We're thinking about orientation. What was pretty cool, which is why I actually had to reschedule with you, was that I was actually giving a talk at Elizabeth City State University, which is a rural HBCU in North Carolina. I had a fabulous time. But it was really encouraging to me to see that one of my implications, even in this model, was including these conversations around diversity, inclusion, and orientation. And I was a speaker about these topics during new student orientation. So how powerful is it that these first-year students and new students and transfer students are already having this conversation on there in week one, you know? So I think that if you take any piece or if a campus was able to implement everything, um, it would yield powerful results. How are we going to fund these positions? Because if it's a communal effort, we also do have to make sure that everyone's getting funded, like orientation council, all the way up from admissions to make sure that it's not just you doing it, that everyone else is doing this and that we have adequate resources. So that's not an issue to be like, oh, well, we can't have the money to get you here. It's more like, a no, 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 we have the money. This is not an excuse. I don't think that many of these things or really any of them are necessarily always tied to funding, if that makes sense. Let me give you an example. Every campus has banner. I think that's what is often used. Or another kind of enrollment management type of system. You're using these systems already. How are you amending them? That doesn't take money. If you're thinking about having more queer inclusive curricula, that is simply having faculty being open to revamping and being more inclusive in their and how they're teaching different courses. Without a classroom experiences, these people, our schools have the budgets. <laughs> it's just about allocating it and what does it look like for how much you're allocating. Even if you don't have a resource center, for instance, right? There are creative ways around it. We talked about this. How are you partnering with your local community? How are you bringing people from the outside? And they probably is at no cost, right? Or very little if they're already in your community to come to campus and be able to engage with them in that manner. I don't think that it's always tied to funding. I think that in some cases, it's that you don't know what you don't know. Having our schools be exposed to these little interventions is extremely helpful. What does that look like? It means being more inclusive in your recruitment of your orientation leaders or even your RAs, things like that. How are you going to infuse these different facets into every aspect of your campus, if that makes sense? Okay. I think we've already talked about, I think your model goes over like what policies are needed to retain faculty and staff members. Would you like to go over that or just want to move on? With regard to policies, it needs to be policies as simple as having a non-discrimination clause in your faculty and staff and administrator. It should be in all the handbook. 
facts, right? So that you're stating and you are making it very known that we're a campus that doesn't tolerate this, you know? I think that is a very, very interesting and steadfast first step to begin these conversations and ensure that these groups that are oftentimes vulnerable in the broader societal context have some form of protection on your campus. Talking about queer and trans alumni, how can we also incorporate the queer community in career and professional development, homecoming, and other events? Because we do have this alumni network. And also, I think it would be important if we did have people from this community talking about, this is how I went through the career um, aspect. This is how, if I did want to come out or if I didn't want to come out. And even just with homecoming and all these other campus events to just help us as well. Awesome. (laughs) I think it's as simple as that, inviting them back to campus. They would definitely come. I do think that Howard is a very good model and it's a powerful model in how they have begun to do this. Seeing that there has been a standing date for a reception to be held on the campus during homecoming week as an official event for current and their alumni queer and trans students to come back with a speaker and all these kind of things, I think is pretty cool. It makes a statement that, oh, it's not we're just we're having this event. No, it is on the program of events for that entire week. I think that if inroads are made from alumni affairs with career services to be able to engage these types of conversations, I think it could be pretty powerful. I'm not even sure people are even thinking about what that would even look like. It's not just the HBCU thing. I've worked at PWIs where we've started different affinity groups for queer and trans students. And one of them was in the School of Business. And you will be very, well, you probably already know this too, Sarah, which is why you asked. A lot of companies are trying to engage these type of affinity groups because they already have them within their companies and trying to recruit for quote unquote diversity purposes. But I don't think that campuses even know that. Does that make sense? So it's even a separate set of programming, even with companies. That makes sense. Next, we're going to move over to this one since I'm in the STEM program. I also wanted to talk about this article, talk about the student health directors providing services to lesbian and gay students at historically Black colleges and universities. And so I just wanted to know what practices are needed for healthcare providers and even other social conscious like medical practices or even just for other STEM fields to help out with this to make their work more inclusive. So I think that training is needed. What I will say this, what this article, I would say, showed myself and my other co-authors is that there are many HBCs that are already engaging in this work. And how are they doing it? Even in opposition to very conservative environments, not only on their campuses, but where they're situated. Many of our schools of HBCs are in the Deep South. So we know what happens with regard to even access to healthcare in some of these poor regions of our country that are overlooked which we know why they're overlooked. It's very anti-Black and it's racist, which is why people don't even have access to healthcare in certain environments in the Deep South. But on our campuses, I think that exposure is key. They be able to ask the right questions because I'm talking about holistic healthcare. So even when thinking about our counseling services, how they can be, it's an all-time high right now with counseling across the higher education sphere and people that are having concerns and issues with mental health because of the onset of this pandemic and other things that are arising. I can't even imagine being an HBCU student, even in my own model right now, and school just began, we had like maybe three or four bomb threats already. What is really happening there so that we can service all of our students? But I think that there are some ways that we can learn from each other 
and looking at different schools that have instituted things like the pre-exposure prophylaxis medication on their campus. They have these clinics to prevent the spread of HIV. There are other campuses that are holding health and wellness weeks. I think about Dillard University that had a sex week. So they were talking about different holistic and how are we engaging in even in consent or other sexual practices, but it was made to be inclusive with the queer and trans community on that campus. How powerful is that? Even in the messaging and the flyers, it wasn't heteronormative in nature. I do think that training and exposure is key. Being able to reach out to even your community stakeholders that are also engaged in this work to come onto your campus so that students are having to leave and potentially out themselves, if that makes sense. For your next article is talking about we are not victims unmasking Black, queer, and trans student activism at HBCUs. One of the things it does talk about, what are the policies needed and can we do this be instituted at individual schools about going on to the excerpt? It talks about one of the things about queer students are unrest at Spelman in CNN and diverse issues. And it talks about the fact that they had a list of demands that they wanted for their LGBT student organization on campus. So is there any other things, policies that we can do, not only just at this school, but also at private and at public institutions as well? I think that with regard to policies and procedures, it will be very helpful if the states in which our schools are, were able to enact policies to protect these students, right? Queer trans individuals. Even if not, there are policies that need to be put in place on these campuses to prevent this. And other things as well, after this student unrest, Spelman made a lot of changes, right? So there were gender-inclusive bathrooms that were made available across the campus. There were security cameras that were put up to make sure that we can see what's going on and make sure that all these students are, all of our students are protected. There was instituting of different diversity training for various stakeholders on campus. I think that these need to be implemented across HBCUs, but I think that we think of Spelman as a very liberal and forward-thinking institution, but they didn't even escape this type of transphobia on their campus, and they too had to evolve and make changes, which I think that we should take that as a lesson, (laughs) that we need to constantly evolve and grow in our practices towards our students and not have to wait for them to protest and have unrest on their campuses. From the excerpt, it said, it would be wise for HBCU communities to capitalize on their unique abilities to serve as spaces of refuge for Black students so long that they embrace and provide access to the full spectrum of Blackness that is present and apparent. How do we not overburden our Black, queer faculty, staff, and administrators? I think that it goes back to our previous conversation is making efforts of diversity inclusion. This is exactly what this is, right? Everyone's job. It's the same thing at a colony white institution on how we're not overburdening <laughs> these same populations, right? It has to become everybody's task. I also think that we as Black queer staff and administrators need to know how to have healthy boundaries, right? And protect ourselves because if we're not whole and we're not taking care of ourselves, then there really isn't a way for us to continue to engage in this work, if that makes sense. I understand. And last question. So what are your takeaways from this conversation? I think that a main takeaway is that there has been a lot of progress within our HBCU communities that I do not believe the masses are even aware of. There's still much more work to be done. We just can't rest and say, okay, we've made these things happen when so much more can occur. 
And so this is a random question. So we got Chloe Bailey to be at our campus. And when I did the pre-interview, you said that Little Nas X is expensive. Do you think, how much expensive do you think that Chloe Bailey is compared to Little Nas X to be at homecoming? All of these artists are going to be expensive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, because I saw her and I just, I was like, maybe, maybe he could come. And I- you know what? And the thing is that if you don't ask, some of these folks will amend their prices. I was on Howard University's homecoming steering committee all four years when I was there. And we were like, we're just going to ask. And you'll be surprised the folks that we had to come for free or at very low cost. Because not only that, I think that now HBCUs are on the main stage in a way. And it's free publicity. They will maybe adjust their riders. So all of those requests that are crazy, oftentimes because we are universities, we can't buy your liquor. We can't do this. We can't do that. I think that asking and asking early is very important because these calendars are going to fill up. October is like tomorrow. (laughs) I think for this year's a wrap, but I think maybe for next year. And I just wanted you to know because I just was like, Chloe Bailey, she's here. She's going to be here in October. So I just was like, maybe. Maybe oh, she's going to be in North Carolina? Yeah, she's, she's going to be here. Wow. So that she's already there. I would still ask, though, Sarah. Like I would tell oh. people that are on your campus activities board or SGA, it just never hurts to ask, to be honest. She knows him. She knows him. So that's why I'm like, I'm just their friends. So there I just was me. looking. I was like, so there's hope. Happen. It could happen. And also, those connections are very important, too. They are. And so on that note... Follow the podcast on IG at funding underscore is underscore the underscore matter. Follow us at Twitter at funds underscore do underscore matter. And subscribe to this podcast. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, or other podcast platform. And this is a bi-weekly podcast. And I'll see you in the next two weeks. It's the money. It's, it's the money. 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 It